Hello. This has been a big week for statistics and predictions. On the one hand, the Prime Minister has made his big speech shifting a variety of net zero targets. This has led to debates not just about forecasts for carbon reductions, but about the way that targets shape behaviour, sometimes positively, sometimes not. And of course, some of those cheering the Prime Minister most loudly are also prone to dispute the certainty of climate science and to deride some of the worst-case scenarios modelled by scientists. For myself, I spent some time this week in a detailed debate over whether the NHS would have been on course to meet the Prime Minister's waiting list pledge if it had not been for the industrial action which continues to unfold in the NHS. It was only as an aside in that conversation that someone quite senior said, of course, the target itself is really stupid. Most of us rely on others, subject experts and statisticians, to guide our thinking, but shouldn't we at least have the tools to tell a weak argument from a strong one? That's one of the purposes of the engaging, wide-ranging and very useful book I'll be discussing with its author in this edition of Forward Vision. Brought to you by the Forward Institute, you're listening to the show that offers a fresh perspective on how to manage change and lead from the front. That's Forward Vision with your host, Matthew Taylor. Well, I'm pleased to welcome Kit Yates, mathematician and author of how to Expect the Unexpected, The Science of Making Predictions and the Art of Knowing When Not To. Welcome, Kit. Hi, Matthew. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Now, in my intro, I talked about what might be the purpose of your book. Now, it's a great read. It doesn't need a justification. But tell me, was there a problem that you feel that you're trying to address in the book? And you are you in some ways motivated by trying to, to make something different? So I think the purposes of the book are multifaceted. I'm an applied mathematician, and my deeply held view is that one of the best ways to understand the world is through a mathematical point of view. Now, I'm not saying that everyone has to be a mathematician, or everyone has to do degree-level mathematics or even A-level mathematics, but what I am saying is that a little bit of mathematical knowledge, a few tips and tricks can be helpful. And so I wanted to, I guess, suggest this worldview to people and to provide people with a few of those tips and tricks or hints and hacks which can help them to maybe optimize their everyday life while opening their eyes to the sort of the bigger picture and how maths can impact on us perhaps without even understanding or perhaps without us realizing. Yeah, and you succeed in that. As I say, it's a great read. But the book ranges wide, but in a sense, it feels to me, Kit, like there are two strands running through the book. And I'm really interested in the kind of relationship between those two strands. So the first is that in the book, you tell us about the way the world is and the complexity of the world, the way in which, for example, many relationships between related phenomena aren't linear, but they follow different kinds of patterns or sometimes no pattern at all. Yeah. Now, that's one strand. Now, the other strand, which I recognize from many other books, is around our kind of cognitive frailties, the ways in which our perceptions and predispositions can mislead us. And it's often in the book, it's the interaction of our cognitive predispositions with the complexity of the world that is at the kind of core of what you're writing. Just explore about the kind of relationship between those two elements of what you've written about. 
Yeah, I think it's really interesting you've picked up on that sort of dichotomy. For me, there are two themes mathematically, and those are the ones that you mentioned, non-linearity, so the way that things don't change just in a straightforward, constant manner in the way that we might expect them to. And the other one is randomness or uncertainty and the fact that we're not very good at dealing with that. But you're absolutely right. I think that although I've prefaced it and saying it's a book about mathematics of course we don't live in isolation the world is not a perfect mathematical equation and actually we're humans we have our own foibles and we have our own biases so in fact the very first chapter of the book starts with me going to visit a psychic to try to understand how these people who perhaps in the past soothsayers or oracles may have given the impression that they were predicting the future have been able to hoodwink us by exploiting our psychological biases and that's precisely what psychics do as well they try to tell us that they know things about us without knowing anything about us in actual fact so i think understanding the interface between mathematical phenomena but also the fact that we experience them as humans and we have our own ingrained biases is a really important part of the book and one of the things I find fascinating about the psychology is that there's been an explosion over the last 20 years of books which are about our cognitive frailties. Lots of brilliant writers, Dan Ariely, for example, I'd pick out, but others as well, who have helped us to understand how we get things wrong. And of course, Daniel Kahneman, that whole school of thought. But the interesting thing is, in a sense, you can read this stuff over and over and over again. I often think it doesn't help us as much as you would think. These predispositions, these frailties, it doesn't matter how much our rational brain is aware of them. It doesn't stop them happening. Now, you're a mathematician. Let's give an example. Are you less prone to superstition, do you think? Well, I think I'm less prone to superstition, partly because I'm a mathematician and, and because I take a scientific viewpoint of the world, yes. But at the same time, there are places where I make the same mistakes that everyone makes. And it is this idea that you have to think slowly and carefully and reason mathematically if you want to try and overcome these biases. But certainly with things like superstitions and coincidences and not jumping to conclusions, mathematics helps with that because you realize that Given enough opportunities, even incredibly unlikely events can happen. I often use the example of the lottery. It's incredibly unlikely that any one person will win the lottery, but someone wins the lottery most weeks because enough people are playing. This is something we call the law of truly large numbers, where effectively if you give something enough chances, even if it's very unlikely, it can still happen. And when it does happen, bearing in mind those huge numbers of possible opportunities for it to happen, we shouldn't be so surprised. It's tempting when people win the lottery. You often read newspaper stories about people saying, oh, it was a sign from above or it was from my dad. It was his birthday that I picked. And so it was a message from him. But actually, of course, it's lovely and tempting to draw those conclusions. But of course, it's potentially erroneous to draw those conclusions. And sometimes jumping to the wrong assumptions can be more damaging than that. Yeah, and that when I was reading that part of the book, it reminded me of a kind of thought that I used to have when I was young. I think a lot of people have this thought, which is that something occurs to you and you think, well, how is it that I am me and the world is like this? And in a sense, our existence feels like the most amazing coincidence. But on the other hand, in a sense, this is the only existence we know about. And any existence is going to be unique. It's a quite mind-boggling element of the book, I think. It is. It's difficult to hold those two seemingly disparate ideas in your head at the same time, both that the emergence of life is this extraordinary phenomena and the fact we've evolved in this particular way 
is a result of thousands, millions, billions of chance events, coin tosses going one way or the other. But potentially, if we had evolved in a different way, we'd still be thinking the same thing if those coin tosses had come down slightly differently. So, yeah, it's hard to hold those two disparate concepts in our heads at the same time. And of course, some of this stuff leads to not two words you normally put together, but mathematics and humor, that there are good jokes, aren't there, that trade on our cognitive frailties, like the example of the comedian who says that his mother always used to take a bomb on the plane on the basis that it was very unlikely there would be two bombs on the plane. So yes. we, we can at least laugh, I think, sometimes at our frailties, can't we? My favorite version of that joke is the one with the guys driving at the night and stops to pick up a hitchhiker and the hitchhiker gets in and after a couple of miles says to the driver, were you not scared that I was going to be a serial killer? And the driver says, no, well, the chances of there being two serial killers in one car are extremely <laughs> unlikely. And of yeah. course, the joke is that it, those are two independent events. One serial killer being in the car doesn't influence the probability of another one. But yes, a priori, the chance of two people being in the same car who are serial killers is incredibly unlikely. It's like the probability of two people or the one person, in fact, winning the lottery twice being very unlikely. But of course, once you win the lottery once, it doesn't alter your probability of winning it again. Your odds get reset each time you play. And in fact, if you've won it once, you may well have the money to play it more frequently and you may decide that you were lucky and you decide to play more frequently. So maybe the chances of winning twice are actually higher than we would expect. So Kate, you're an applied mathematician. So let's look at some of your arguments in the context of lively debates that are unfolding all the time. So Let's first of all talk about targets. Now, I have a background in policy and public service. I run an NHS organization now. So the debate about targets and what the good things about targets, but the perverse dangers of targets is an ongoing one. But also we had another element of that with Rishi Sunak's speech, where in a sense, when he changes the targets, for example, for the point at which we phase out being able to buy petrol cars. Part of the debate is, well, the difficulty is that once you move the target, you change the behavior. And actually, if you keep the target, you'll accelerate the behavior you want. Now, you write a lot about this in the book, and there's no kind of simple answer to this. Some targets are clever and effective, and some are stupid and counterproductive. But this podcast is partly about leadership, and it's listened to by leaders or people interested in leadership. So this kind of question of setting targets, leaders are always tempted to set targets as if the setting of targets does something in of itself. What would you want leaders to think about most when someone comes to them and says, look, the answer to this problem is to set a target? Yeah, I think there's a lot to unpick here. I think it's worth remembering absolutely that setting a target can actually change behaviour. So for example, with net zero, the fact that the UK had this very ambitious target for 2030 was actually prodding manufacturers into generating or creating better electric cars. So it changed the way that people work in putting that target back potentially will delay their moves to generate better technology around electric cars. So in that sense, the target's a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's a phrase you use in the book, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So we have both self-fulfilling and also self-defeating prophecies. So for example, at the start of the pandemic, when mathematical modelers predicted that 250,000 people would die of COVID if nothing was done, of course, no government in their right mind could allow that to happen. And so we implemented a lockdown largely based on that modeling prediction. And then when obviously the 250,000 deaths didn't come to pass in the first six months of the pandemic, or they were actually very close to that total, now around 230,000 people have died from COVID in the UK. When that prediction didn't come 
to pass, people said, well, the models were wrong. And of course, it was a self-defeating prophecy. It changed the future. And so that's something we have to be very aware of. I think we also need to be aware of things like boomerangs, where our predictions or our incentives, you mentioned perverse incentives, can come back to bite us. The classic example is in the British Raj in India. It's called the cobra effect for a very specific reason, because the British had a problem with cobras in India. They wanted to get rid of them. So they put a bounty on the head of cobras. Every dead cobra that someone brought in, they would get paid some money for it. And of course, smart, savvy people decided they were going to stop farming cobras so that they could kill them and make money and actually made the problem worse because once the British realized that this was happening, they scrapped the bounty. These opportunistic cobra farmers just dumped their cobras onto the street. And so the problem became a lot worse. So we have these, not quite a self-defeating prophecy that, but I call that a boomerang where you throw it away and it comes back and it hits you in the head. So yeah, we have to be aware of those things as well as Goodhart's Law. I don't know if you've come across this one before. Yes. Yeah, so Goodhart's Law, this idea that when a metric becomes a target, it ceases to be a good metric of how things are performing. And so maybe close to your heart, hospital targets, if you penalize hospitals that do badly on surgical outcomes, for example, then at least in the United States, it's happened that those hospitals just start turning down the more difficult surgeries and stop doing those difficult surgeries because they have the worst outcomes. And they shoot up the tables and they get more money because of that, but people aren't getting the surgery they need. And so it stops being a good metric of how well the hospital is doing. No, I think good heart thought is really important. And actually, I, my understanding of it would go a little bit further, actually, than what you described in the book, which is in a sense that it's about correlations, that the correlation between the thing that you care about and a metric disappears once you use the metric as a way of incentivizing the behavior. And actually, I think the classic example, you're an academic, the classic example of this actually is in academia, where there was a relationship between the quality of an academic's work and how hard they worked and the number of articles they had in referee journals until the government said, well, the way we're going to judge academic excellence is on the number of articles in referee journals, at which point all sorts of not very good journals sprung up <laughs> and academics had the terrible habit of reproducing almost exactly the same article in as many journals as they possibly could. So it's quite destructive. Now, D.H. Lawrence once said when he was in Mexico that meeting expats was a terrible experience because all they did was shove chewed up newspapers into his ears. Now, the reason I say this is because I'm going to do something I don't normally do, which is to shove a couple of chewed up articles in your ear because I am a reader of the London Review of Books. And actually, by coincidence, the last two editions of the LRB have both contained really fascinating articles which are very relevant to your book. And I want to ask you about both. So the first one is a, a piece by Jeff Mann about climate change. The, the essence of it is this, I think, and I'm really interested in your kind of take on this case. So what he argues is, look, the vast majority of us who think that climate change is real and broadly support the scientific consensus, we want to emphasize certainty. We want to emphasize in the face of climate change skepticism, look, there's an overwhelming consensus about this. Let's not prevaricate. But he also argues that in the end, actually, climate change science is probabilistic. There are so many unknowns. There are so many feedback loops that if we're telling the truth about climate science, we will say, well, there is a scientific consensus, but actually, we don't know. But the, the very phrase, well, we don't absolutely know about the effect of greenhouse gases in our atmosphere, could be seen to give succor to those who want to promote skepticism and discourage policy action. And then the second point he makes, which is related to this, 
is that we need to understand this because we also need to understand that when you look at the probabilistic distribution, as it were, the probabilities which are more extreme are nearly all clustered around the worst case scenario. They're not clustered around actually everything's going to be okay and we're wrong about this. And I thought it was a really powerful piece and it made me think about in a slightly kind of pessimistic way, that you want people to understand this. You want people to understand that climate change science can be probabilistic, but it can still mean that we should absolutely act on it. And you want people to understand that there are possibilities that are really worrying and the possibilities are clustered around that kind of bad end. But almost to have that debate almost feels dangerous. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's very tempting just to shut off any people that we would call climate change denialists, who are, as you say, in the vast minority. I think our job as scientists communicating science is indeed to communicate this uncertainty. And I think there are studies which suggest that actually when you're upfront about uncertainty, people trust you even more than when you blanket say this is 100% true because people think you're trying to pull the wool over their eyes. I think a sort of smaller scale example of this, not unrelated, is weather forecasting, where we're tempted to just look at the picture that comes up on the weather forecast, a big sun or a rain cloud. But actually recently, over the last 10 years or so, weather forecasts have started to communicate the uncertainty associated with their forecast. And so actually, if you go underneath that picture, you see a figure which says 10% chance of rain if it's a big sun in the sky, or maybe it says 90% chance of rain if you've got the rain cloud picture. And actually, that uncertainty information empowers people because it allows people to make a judgment. It lets people know that actually, just because there's a big sun there, it doesn't mean it's necessarily not going to rain. And similarly, if there's a cloud, when it doesn't rain, people traditionally might have been upset. But if you have that probabilistic forecast, you can say, well, actually, nine times out of 10 with these conditions, I would have expected it to rain. But one time out of 10, I would have expected not to rain. And this maybe is that one time out of 10. So I think communicating that uncertainty when we're communicating scientific ideas is really important. The other thing to say is that climate science and weather forecasting and many of the things we use to predict the future are predicated on mathematical models. Now, mathematical modeling came in for a lot of stick during the pandemic in particular, people suggesting that mathematical models were wrong. But actually, mathematical models are the best tool we have to try to predict the future. We formulate all the assumptions that we have, we write them down and we build a mathematical model and then we run forward. And we try and do that in a range of different scenarios where we tweak the initial assumptions so that we get a range of uncertainty around that. And any good modeling should include that uncertainty, but it should also be completely explicit and upfront about the assumptions which go into that model. So if you disagree with the assumptions in the model, then it's fine to take issue with the conclusions. But just saying it's modeling and it's not the real world and therefore I don't believe it, that's not a sufficient reason to reject a prediction from modeling. I absolutely agree with you that we have to, as it were, go through the pain barrier in the sense of we have to be willing to say to people, look, no, this isn't certain, and see them go, hang on, but I thought you said it was, in order to be able to say, look, it's not certain, but actually it looks like it's kind of 95% certain. And actually when I used to talk about climate change, I used to express the argument really simply. I used to say, look, let's just say that you think climate change science is being a little bit too pessimistic. Let's just say that you think the chances of it being of carbon emissions ending up doing great damage to the world are 60%, not 90%, as the scientists suggest. But then think about insurance. I used to say this to school kids. The chances of your house being burgled or burnt down is much smaller than that, much, much smaller than that. But your family spends hundreds, if not thousands of pounds every year 
investing in the possibility that something much less likely than climate change is going to happen. So I think you're right. I think we should tell people that things aren't certain, but then say, but overwhelmingly, they're there very likely. And therefore, the sensible thing to do is surely to take precautions. Yeah, I think the precautionary principle holds sway both in climate science. We've seen it in the pandemic as well. I think the other thing to say is that if you're waiting for 100% certainty, then you're going to wait forever because that's not how science works. Science works by putting forward a hypothesis and then trying to disprove that hypothesis. And the more times you try to disprove the hypothesis and you fail to disprove it, the more confidence you gain in your initial hypothesis. But you never, ever prove anything true in science. Theories are just hypotheses that haven't been proved to be false. You build up more and more evidence, but you never get there with 100% certainty. So I think that that's something that we also should bear in mind, that if you wait for 100% certainty, then potentially you wait forever. So the second LRB article that I wanted to ask you about was by John Lanchester in the latest edition. He argues that we have too often let statistics replace values and sometimes ideas when it comes to debate. And he gives two examples. One is the very well-known example of the £350 million for the NHS on the side of the bus. But the other, which is kind of in a way more interesting, I think, because we all know that that statistic was a bit of political game playing, is the example of the Reinhardt and Rogoff data about the relationship between fiscal deficits and long-term growth, which was used extensively by George Osborne to justify austerity, but then was subsequently found to be based on a miscalculation. I mean, I'm really interested, you've written the book and you're a mathematician, you want us to use data, you just said this, and to use the mathematic modelling. But do you sometimes feel queasy when people try to use statistics which are actually contested to close down debate or to suggest that the statistic itself resolves something, which in the end is a matter of judgment and opinion? Yeah, absolutely. This is something which I covered a little bit more actually in my first book, The Maths of Life and Death. I advise people not to just take statistics on face value because actually the statistics that you will see in the headline or tumble out of the mouths of our politicians are often just a light shone in a particular direction to illuminate a scene to give you a particular impression. But no one statistic is ever going to be definitive on the subject. And actually, we need to look at things more in the round and not be alarmed and not just take statistics as some sort of hard truth. People view numbers and stats as nuggets of hard truth that are unassailable and you can't argue with. There's this thing called the illusion of certainty where the people who wield the numbers cannot be questioned, often because people don't feel confident in their own mathematical abilities or, in fact, because people just don't have time in real time to run a fact check on those numbers. And that speaks to the huge importance of real-time or near-real-time fact-checking so that a statistic doesn't suddenly go viral without being able to rebut it. Unfortunately, uh, there's that phrase that a lie is halfway around the world before the truth gets its shoes on or whatever, it, something like that. But yeah, I think we need to bear in mind that the people who are spouting these statistics might not always be best placed to interpret them and also that we must question why people are bringing out statistics in a particular context and see whether we can find the context for that statistic and see whether there's a bigger story part of the scene that we're not having the spotlight shone on that we just can't see. One other thing I wanted to ask you about in terms of the book, and that is in your chapter on game theory in the book. Now, I found the, the chapter really interesting, but the bit in it that kind of jarred with me is that you say in the chapter, human beings act on self-interest 
and act on a kind of rational self-interested basis and that was why game theory kind of works and of course that reminded me of the kind of way in which economics has become it's perhaps changed a bit in the last few years but certainly in the 70s 80s 90s noughties became really a kind of very mathematically based subject based upon the notion of homo economicus the notion of the rational self-interested actor but then there's another point in the book you talk about social contagion you talk about the way in which we can herd mentality how we can act in very irrational ways that nothing to do with our self-interest but to do with social norms panics whatever what's your underlying view of human motivation yeah i think those two things are not necessarily mutually exclusive i think There's this concept of bounded rationality. So there's some sort of horizon beyond which we can't see that we may be doing something which in the long run is bad for us. And I think the example of the tragedy of the commons sort of captures that quite nicely. We all do things like getting in the car when we could cycle or walk, for example, because it's going to be slightly quicker and it's raining outside and it's nicer. So in the short term, that's good for us. But in the long term, potentially, that's not good for society, it's not good for the environment, it's not good in terms of climate change, and that is going to be detrimental to everyone in the long term. So I think people doing what may not be in their best interest in the long term is not mutually exclusive to them doing things which are in their best interest in the short term. So potentially acting what seemingly might seem like irrational from one viewpoint. I think another thing to say is about people's underlying motivation. So I think I mentioned suicide bombers in the book. For most people who will be reading the book, I imagine it's very difficult to imagine why that would ever be a rational course of action we would characterize those people as completely irrational, killing themselves. But actually, when they've been told that there are virgins waiting for them in paradise, and when they've been told that there are multiple benefits in the afterlife, then maybe the costs start to be outweighed by the rewards and that becomes a rational decision. So I think just because we don't understand someone else's motivations, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're acting irrationally. I don't think that there are are many people who genuinely act irrationally, possibly toddlers. I think anyone who's had kids will probably have experienced at least not being able to understand that toddler's point of view and potentially some people with severe forms of mental illness might be acting genuinely irrationally. But I think generally, yeah, I hold true to the belief that we do act rationally, but it might be that we can't always understand each other's motivations. Yeah, if we had more time, we could debate this further because I, I, in the end, I think Kit, that the problem is it becomes a totally circular argument. So it's an argument that says, well, look, people behave rationally. And then you say, well, yeah, but hang on, look at this behavior, suicide bombers or people who feign, well, they're not really feigning sickness, but suggest that they need medical help when it looks like it's actually a psychosomatic, all those kind of forms of, and then the argument is, yes, but that's rational from their perspective, the rational from the perspective of a suicide bomb or rational from the perspective of somebody who thinks that their psychosomatic illness is real. You say, well, hang on then. If you're defining what looks to be highly irrational behavior as rational, what is being achieved by the assertion that we're all rational? I suppose all we're saying is everything we do has a reason for it. Well, yes, I guess we can accept that. I suppose so. I think the sort of hint is that you have to understand other people's 
motivations. I suppose if you understood exactly someone's motivations, then you might be able to predict that they're a suicide bomber, despite that being totally irrational for us from the outside. Of course, the really difficult part is understanding precisely someone's motivations at a particular time in a particular place. But I agree with you, it becomes slightly circular. It reminds me of the the handicap principle in evolutionary biology, where people explain away things which look like they're an evolutionary disadvantage, like the peacock's tail feathers. I say, well, actually, that showing that you've got that disadvantage makes the female think you're better than you are, and so you get to mate more. And so any sort of disadvantage that might crop up within an animal, forever, which might seem disadvantageous from an evolutionary point of view, you can explain away by saying, well, it gets this male or this female more chances of mating and passing on their genes, and so that trait gets propagated. But yes, it's not a dissimilar idea. I can give you a great story that relates to that, Kit. Years ago, I was at a wreath lecture, and the wreath lecture was by a neuroscientist. And he was talking about the phenomenon of phantom limb syndrome. And a kind of rather kind of headbanging fan of evolutionary psychology was asking questions and, and said repeatedly, it wouldn't let it go, it was like a dog with a bone, but what is the evolutionary purpose of phantom limb syndrome? Why are we evolved to have phantom limb syndrome? At which point the great and sadly missed Jonathan Miller, who was sitting at the back of the auditorium, this is at the Royal Institution, he obviously became exasperated and he shouted out, listen, he said, all limbs are phantom limbs. It's just that some have got real limbs in them. <laughs> Brilliant, yes. <laughs> Which I thought was a fantastic way of exactly making your point, actually. Now, yeah, yeah. one last question. You write about AI in the book and you actually write about AI to kind of warn us a bit of some of the kind of perils of AI. How worried are you that, you know, the Prime Minister is encouraging us all, all our children to learn maths and now until we're 80 and the vital importance of mathematics skills. But in the end, we are moving into a world where we can ask our phone any question we want about anything and get what sounds like an authoritative answer. And the danger is that's how we then proceed through the world. And that what you're encouraging us to do, which is to look behind the answer, understand there are probably many answers. I worry, I guess, that AI is just going to make us incredibly lazy and that although AI will be right on the vast majority of occasions, when it's wrong, the danger of us all succumbing to that inaccuracy, not understanding that a statistic is not definitive, but just one possible way of looking at the world, that we will succumb to that. Yeah, I think you've captured it perfectly there. I think it would be great to rely on AI. And I think we can do for some things. I think it is improving potentially medical diagnostics. It can help out with scanning mammograms, for example. It can aid radiographers where we have a shortage in the NHS, for example. But I think the danger is when we come to rely on it and believe it in 100% certainty. So you can go to chat GPT, for example, and you can ask it a question. It'll give you a very authoritative and sensible sounding answer on a particularly difficult topic. But actually, when you unpick some of that answer, often, not always, but often, it can be nonsense or it can be based on specious reasoning. So I, for example, in this bit about linearity in the book, about trying to understand how ingrained these ideas of linearity and direct proportion are in our head, this idea that if you double the price of something, then you should get twice as much of it, for example. That's the essence of direct proportion. So I asked ChatGP, you know, if you've got this washing line and you hang three towels on the line and it takes them three hours to dry, 
how long does it take nine towels to dry on that washing line? And it says, well, you've got three times as many towels, and so it should take them three times as long to dry. And of course, if your washing line is big enough, it shouldn't take any longer for nine towels to dry than it takes three towels to dry. So I think this idea that artificial intelligence is going to be this panacea isn't maybe not quite right. I have big hopes for it, and I hope it will, I'm sure it will transform society and it will help us out but we do need to be careful about how much we rely on it and this is the real problem with things like self-driving cars which rely on artificial intelligence we really can't afford for them to fail 10% of the time or even 1% of the time or 0.1% of the time because the potential consequences are catastrophic if it does fail so we really need to keep working on that yeah i think that's such an important lesson okay of the book overall which is that in a sense the more we are offered certainty the more vital it is that we have the tools to be able to kind of dig under that and you know as i said this this podcast is oriented to leaders and i think if you're a leader and someone comes to you and says look here's a statistic which proves a particular argument or demonstrates we need to follow a particular course of action the more on the one hand the more this certainty is emphasized and secondly the more that that statistic seems to reinforce the predisposition that you know the person speaking to you already had, the more you you need to take the time to just dig under it and and also to be aware of some of the ways in which statistics can be most powerfully used to misinform us. Absolutely. I mean, one of the most prevalent biases that many people are probably aware of, but also subject to, and I count myself in that, I'm very aware of it, is confirmation bias. We only look where we want to find the answer. And actually, really, we should spend most of our time looking where we don't want to find the answer. You know this story of the policeman walking along the street and he finds a, a drunk searching underneath the street light for his keys. And the policeman said, oh, are you sure you dropped them around here? And the drunk man says, well, no, I dropped them in the park, but this is where the light is. <laughs> and so we tend to look where the light is and we tend to not look in the dark where we actually need to be looking to try to find the answers, to find the opposing views that we don't like so that we can be sure that we don't like them, I suppose, but so that we can actually look at both sides of the evidence and not just reinforce our views continually until we become almost certain about something and leave no room for uncertainty. Well, that's a perfect way for us to end our conversation. Kit, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed Kit's book, How to Expect the Unexpected. It's a, a book I'll keep and something I'll refer to when understanding the numbers is important to me. But in the end, as we discussed, I think, the advice I would take from his book is this. Every time a statistic is used for the purpose of making or winning an argument, there will almost certainly somewhere be a debate about that statistic. So if you feel that a statistic, a figure, is going to change your mind, is going to guide your decisions, then it's almost certainly a good investment of your time to go online and explore the debate that lies behind that number, that lies behind that statistic. And of course, if you've read Kit's book, you'll be just a little bit more able to adjudicate between the different views that you'll find. Goodbye. And if you've enjoyed this edition of Forward Vision, please leave a rating or review in your podcast app. It really does make a difference. Thank you. The Forward Institute is a non-profit organisation with the mission of building a movement for responsible leadership. With a network of global business leaders, the Forward Institute facilitates cross-sector learning, 
creating space for challenging conversations and exploring the very real dilemmas leaders face. For more information, visit forward.institute.